0: It was only about um, a month ago that I realized that my life uh, was in danger, that all of our lives um, were in danger because about a month ago, I read an article about this video, this documentary that we just showed you the trailer of, uh, an article that talked about a, a Christian numerologist, and I don't know what that is. But a guy by the name of David Mead, who calls himself a Christian numerologist, who was predicting that the beginning of the end of the world would be September 23rd, 2017. See, uh, David Mead had figured out that on that particular day, the moon would be in conjunction with the constellation of Virgo. In fact, positioned just beneath Virgo's feet, which he felt, by his estimation, was not an arrangement in the stars that had ever occurred before in human history. Which turns out to be false. But, um, but he felt was, a, was the fulfillment of a prophecy from the Bible in Revelation chapter 12 verses 1 to 2. That was kind of indicating the beginning of the end of the world. That Sign and the stars combined with the solar eclipse of August 21st, the series of hurricanes in September, the uh, Mexican earthquake on September 19th, all of these events together caused David Mead to arrive at the conclusion that on September 23rd, the beginning of the end of the world would emerge and it would plunge the world. The world would plunged into all of the kinds of events that we just saw in the video. Now, um, you and I, we're all sitting here and it's not September 23rd anymore. And so we can breathe a sigh of relief because nothing happened on September 23rd, which David made said after the fact was exactly what he thought was going to happen. And then he revised his date for the beginning of the end of the world to October 15th. 2017, this very day, which I'm just going to say out loud that if I had to write and preach a sermon today and then the world ends later today, I'm going to be super ticked that I did all that work for nothing, right? But David Mead says that sometime today, some cataclysmic events are going to take place that are going to be the beginning of the end of the world. Now, if you grew up inside the church, Maybe in particular the evangelical church in North America. Predictions, these doomsday prophecies about the end of the world. Over the last 40 years have kind of become somewhat commonplace. Right We kind of get used to the fact that every once in a while people just predict that the world is going to end. And the the question kind of hangs out there. Both for those of us who grew up in the church. And I think maybe for people who grew up outside the church Especially. This has got to seem like the craziest crackpot thing in the world. Why would somebody predict that the world is going to end? Um, Where does this come from? Why do Christians do this? And I'll tell you, the predictions of the end of the world come out of passages in the Bible like the one we're going to be studying for the next six weeks. And in fact, they come out of this particular passage specifically, and ones that are related to it. For those who have been around, we've been studying the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew's telling of the life story of Jesus for the last number of years. And this morning, we're beginning, really getting close to the end of the gospel. We're studying Matthew chapter 24 and 25 for the next six weeks. The last sermon Jesus ever preaches and the last sermon Jesus ever preaches before he dies is about the end of the world. And it all begins, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to start in verse 1. It all begins with a very innocent scenario. It says this, Matthew chapter 24 verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Now, if you're around in the early part of 2017, the last time sort of from winter into spring, we talked about... uh, Matthew 21, 22, and 23. And in those chapters, Jesus spends that whole period of time in the temple, teaching in public, debating the religious leaders of Israel. And this passage picks up right at the tail end of all of those public debates, where it says Jesus was leaving the temple with his disciples, and they were heading back to the town of Bethany, where they were spending the night. They were in Jerusalem to celebrate the week-long festival of the Passover, and leaving the temple, they would have left through the East Gate and traveled through the Kidron Valley and up onto the Mount of Olives where if you turn around, you have this spectacular view of the city of Jerusalem and in particular, the temple that is sitting there in all of its glory. And the disciples have this kind of touristy moment and they kind of grab Jesus by the robe and they say, hey, check out how beautiful this temple is. And it really was. There's a first century historian by the name of Josephus who writes this. He says, the temple was the most admirable of all the works that we have ever seen or heard of, both for its curious structure and its sheer magnitude, and also for the vast wealth bestowed upon it, as well as for the glorious reputation it had for its holiness. For a Jew in the first century, the temple was the most sacred place on the entire planet. It was the place where heaven and earth met, where human beings could go and stand on earth, which is where people live in the presence of God who is in heaven. You could be in heaven and on earth at the same time in the temple in this act of worshiping God. And they were just sort of in that moment struck by the awe and the majesty of it all. And they said, Jesus, just check it out. And Jesus' response, I think, probably catches them a little off guard. He says this. He says, do you see all these things? He's kind of indicating the temple. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Jesus says, don't get too attached. The whole thing is going to be destroyed. And that says in verse three, as the disciples were sitting on the Mount of Olives, or as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? When they use that phrase, the end of the age, they mean, when will you return or appear as king and usher in the end of human history? Say, Jesus prophesies the destruction of the temple but his disciples know exactly what they're talking about. Because in the Jewish tradition, the prophets had said, when the temple is destroyed, that's a sign of God's judgment on Israel. But then it will be rebuilt and God will come and live in the temple and he will usher in the end of human history with all of its darkness and oppression and chaos and injustice. And he will usher in an era that the Bible calls the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of God which is an era of life and light and hope and peace and love and when Jesus says to the disciples hey don't get too attached this temple is going to be destroyed they know that Jesus is letting them know that the end is near and so they come to Jesus with this question when are these things going to happen and what will be the sign that the end is near And the church is obsessed over that question in various periods for the last 2,000 years. In fact, I I went back, I looked up the number of predictions of the end of the world. More than 150 times in church history, someone has predicted a specific end to human history. Starting in the mid-300s with a man named Hilary of Poitiers who said that the world was going to end in 365 and all the way to more recent times, since the turn of the millennium, 12 times since the year 2000, people have declared the end of the world. Remember Y2K, if you're old enough? Y2K was this computer bug in Microsoft computers that was going to trigger these cataclysmic software failures and, and, and catastrophic events all over the world that was going to trigger a global economic crisis that was going to be God's judgment on humanity, and it was going to be the beginning of the end of the world. In 2011, there was a man named Harold Camping who predicted in May 2011 that the world was going to end and then, uh, like, it didn't. And so then he said, I meant October uh, 2011 and then, um, like, it didn't. And then uh, we never heard from Harold Camping again. (laughs) Around 2013, there was a book that was released by John Hagee called The Four Blood Moons talking about a series of lunar eclipses in 2014 and 2015 that he said were linked to catastrophic global events and would usher in the end of the world, uh, which they didn't. And then David Mead saying that today is going to be the beginning of the end. And to be fair to David Mead, uh, there's still time. So I don't want to judge him ahead of time, but... Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to get an email from any of you tomorrow morning. But it's because of this passage and passages like it that people get obsessed. Because the disciples come to Jesus, they say, when will these things happen? And what's the sign that the end is coming? And in this passage, Jesus appears to give them all sorts of answers. For example, in verse 6, he says this, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Uh, In verse 7, he says there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And so people hear about the escalating tensions between the U.S. and North Korea, this nuclear engagement. They think the end is near, right? The earthquake in Mexico, the famines in Africa, you know, uh, uh, um, catastrophic events like the hurricanes we saw in September. And people say, this is it. You see, this is what Jesus was talking about, uh, Maybe it's actually global warming, but but we race to passages like this and say the end is near. In verse 12, Jesus says, because of the increase in wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And people say, look, the world has never been more wicked than it is today. It's easy to watch the news and to accumulate evidence that the world is getting worse, which I don't think it is. But it's easy to accumulate that evidence. In verse 14, Jesus says this, And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And people say, see, we have missionaries all over the world translating the Bible into every known language. With the internet and global communications, we can tell the whole world the good news about Jesus. The end must be near. In verse 24, Jesus says this, for false prophets, false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And people are constantly on the lookout for for political or religious figures who are leading people away from Jesus. And they say, see, those are the false prophets. The, The most recent one that I've heard about is Emmanuel Macron, the new president of France. Or verse 29, Jesus says, Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And they say, see a solar eclipse, a you know, lunar eclipses. A, Halley's comet is passing by. The, David Mead says, the world is going to collide with the planet Nibiru, which doesn't even exist. But people see things happening in the heavens. And they say, See, the end is near. And the truth is that in all of the things I've just read to you, Jesus was not predicting the end of human history. See, the disciples. This is how I understand the passage. This morning is sort of an introduction to the whole series. We're going to just talk about what Jesus wasn't talking about and what he was talking about to set the whole stage for the series. The disciples come to Jesus with this question. What, when will these things, the destruction of the temple, happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And they think they're asking Jesus about one thing. That when the temple is destroyed to them, that feels like the end of the world. They know the biblical prophets had said when the temple is destroyed, shortly after that, God will, the temple will be rebuilt and God will appear and will reign as king over his people and over the world. And the eternal kingdom of God will come. And they're like, Jesus, just tell us when this is going to happen and how we will know. And what Jesus does is he takes their question and he breaks it into two questions. And in the passage we're going to look at next week, from verse 4 to 35, Jesus answers their first question. When will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? As we look at it next week, I'll show you that the verses from 4 to 35 are all about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The whole passage is filled with when answers. Jesus says in those days and after that and in this time and and then this is going to happen. They're all full of time indicators, and then it all kind of climaxes in verse thirty-four, which Jesus says, "Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened." Jesus' answer to the question of when will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? Jesus says, "Within your generation." And true to his word. In 70 CE, uh, the Roman armies destroyed uh, Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, and some of Jesus' very disciples were alive to witness it. But here's the thing Jesus is answering the question when will the temple be destroyed? Remember, that's how this starts. They say, Look at the temple. Jesus says, Ah, it's going to be destroyed. When will the temple be destroyed by 70 CE? All of the verses that I read to you about wars and rumors of wars and wickedness and false prophets and stars in this or signs in the heavens and so on. All of those things have to do fall into the passage where Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. Not about the end of human history. See Jesus in verse 36 switches gears And starts to answer their second question. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end? And he says this in verse 36. But about that day or hour no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the son but only the father. Jesus up until then have been talking about those days. But in verse 36 he starts to talk about that day. Singular a completely different thing. In fact, you know it's a completely different thing because he says, but about that day. It's a little Greek phrase, peri de. And peri de means, I'm now going to start talking about something different than what I was talking about before. It's like when in English we say, now switching gears and we talk about something new. Jesus changes the topic. Prior to that verse, there's all sorts of when answers in what Jesus says. After that verse, the answer is you can't know. There is no when answer to the when question. You just won't know. There'll be no sign of his coming. There are other markers in the text that let you know that Jesus is no longer talking about the destruction of the temple, but he's talking about the end of all things. And the bottom line is this. All of the things in a text like this that cause some people to grow anxious and concerned that the world is about to end based on what Jesus has taught, none of them are rooted in this text. All of the things that we have assumed are signs of the end in this passage are ultimately only evidences that the temple is going to be destroyed in 70 C.E. When we think about sort of the cataclysmic, catastrophic, end of the world kind of prophecies, like the video we watched just before the message, that's not what Jesus envisions when he envisions the end of the world. So, switching gears, huh? what does Jesus envision? Well, if the world is not, end of the world, end of human history is not going to be this catastrophic, cataclysmic Armageddon event where everything gets destroyed. What is it going to be? Well, in order to understand Jesus' vision of the end, you have to understand the story that the scripture tells in its entirety about human history. See, you've got to know where you've come from in order to know where you're going. And the Bible tells the story of human history in five acts. It's a five-act play. Now, I should say, the Bible is not human history in its totality. It is not a textbook of history. It is a theological telling of the history of humanity's relationship with God. That's what it is through the eyes of the people of Israel. That's what it is. But it tells that story in five acts. In act chapter one, God creates the world. And I should say, the Bible doesn't tell us how God creates the world. It's also not a science textbook. We go to science to learn scientific things. It is a, it's a book of theology. It tells us about God and about us and about life. And so we go to the Bible to learn those things. So however God created the world, God created this vast and magnificent universe. And within this universe, he created this earth. And on this earth, which was filled with the fullness of his flourishing and life and love and beauty and goodness, he placed uh, human beings who were created in his image who are created to live in community with each other, cooperating with each other to practice the loving presence of God in worship, to live in loving relationships with each other in community, and then to spread the self-giving love of God around the world, to expand and deepen the scope of human flourishing in the world. Rooted in the love of God. That's act one. You can call it creation. Act two is called the fall. In which human beings decide that they don't want to do what God has created them to do. They ignore God and rebel against his commands. They ignore each other and subvert their relationships with manipulation and domination they ignore the world instead they exploit it for their own selfish purposes human beings run god's creation beauty love project onto the onto shore But God doesn't give up on his creation in act three. He chooses among the human family, one family, the nation of Israel, to be his representative people, to be a community of people who love God and love each other and who love the world the way people were always supposed to. But they, like all the rest of humanity choose to ignore God and rebel against him, choose to destroy relationships through subversion, manipulation, and domination, who choose to exploit creation for their own purposes, they fall into sin just like everybody else. And so in Act 4, God really demonstrates that he's not going to give up on his creation. And he comes to earth himself in the form of Jesus of Nazareth, God in human flesh, who is the human being that human beings were always created to be, the only true human person that has ever lived, who practices the loving presence of God every moment of every day, who always only ever loved everybody that he came into contact with, who loved the world with the same self-giving love of God, pouring it out everywhere on everybody, especially on the marginalized and the oppressed. And the world hated him for it so much that we nailed him to a cross. We crucified him because he was getting in the way of our agenda. But God raised Jesus from the dead and declared Jesus' love to be victorious, greater, more powerful than the power of sin and darkness in the world. And God put took Jesus back to heaven and put him in charge of his creation restoration project. In act five, Jesus surrounds himself with a community of people who filled with the Holy Spirit will learn to love, will learn to practice the loving presence of God, loving God with all that they are and all that they have. They will learn to love each other as much or more as they love themselves. They will learn to love the world with the self-giving love of God, battling injustice in human societies and battling the exploitation of God's creation. And this act five that tells the story of the church is interesting in the scriptures because it's kind of incomplete. The Bible tells us the first scene of Act 5, the church in the first century who were just trying to figure out what it would look like to live the love of Jesus into the world as a community. The first scene, and then the Bible gives us the final scene. The way the whole thing comes to an end. When Jesus returns as the victorious king in all of his glory and brings the human story to its completion. And the funny thing about the way the Bible paints the picture of the end is that it's not at all like the apocalyptic, cataclysmic, catastrophic visions that the doomsday prophets put in front of people. In fact, this is how the Bible describes it. In Revelation 2, chapter 21 it says this then i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea i saw the holy city the new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. John says, in the end, when Jesus returns, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Not new, Greek has two words for new. One means new as in it was never there before. And the other means renewed, made new all over again. And that's the passage. That's the word that John uses in this passage. The doomsday prophets say that at the end of human history, at the end of the world, the world itself will be destroyed in the judgment of God. The Bible says, no, it won't. It will be recreated, restored, renewed, revitalized, renovated. It will be remade into the very thing that God always wanted it to be, this creation. The doomsday prophets tell us that at the end of the world, um, everybody before the world is completely destroyed, everybody will leave either to go to heaven in the presence of God for eternity or to go to hell apart from the presence of God for eternity. But that's not what John says. The movement in the passage is not people leaving earth to go to heaven. The movement in the passage is people coming from heaven to come back to earth. This image of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. That's an image of the church. Those who have died and gone to be with God in heaven, returning with God, coming from heaven back to earth with the presence of God, being resurrected in their physical bodies, Being given renewed physical bodies so they can come and live back here on this renewed creation. And God will come with them and he will take up residence on this planet and he will live in the midst of his people forever. And people will live in the presence of God as those who no longer rebel against God and ignore him and reject him. But who are learning to practice the presence of God every moment of every day. As those who are no longer breaking relationship with each other. But who are loving each other as much or more as they love themselves. Who are no longer Um, exploiting God's world for their own selfish ends, but who are instead loving God's world with the same self-giving love of God. Because God will have rooted out of creation everything and everyone that is purposely trying to undermine the perfect love of God, the recreating love of God. That's God's judgment. God's judgment is not some apocalyptic, cataclysmic destruction of everything. God's judgment is the surgical removal of everything that undermines love. So that this whole earth can become the eternal kingdom in which we spend an eternity living in the presence of God. The interesting thing about Act 5 in the Bible is that it gives us the first scene, the early church in the first century, and the last scene, what happens in the end. And it gives us none of the scenes in between. Because those are the scenes that we have to write. Those are the scenes that we are responsible for. As we learn to improvise this story of God rescuing his creation in love, we pick it up from where those who have gone before us leave it off and we carry it forward until we hand it to those who come behind us. And the church has been writing the story of God's redemption of his planet in love for the last 2,000 years. And yes, some scenes have been better than others but we've been writing the story of God's love and we've been invited by God every moment of every day to live, to move the story forward by the way we live into the love of God with our lives. Recently, um, Kristen and I decided that we needed to do some work in our backyard. We had a old sunroom. The foundation was crumbling We had a backyard that was a real mess. It was quite unusable. And we decided that we'd better do something with the backyard so that it could be a space where we could spend time as a family and host others and so on. And so before we did anything to fix all the problems with our backyard, we hired somebody to come to look at our space and to draw us a plan of the future. To draw us a picture of what the backyard would one day be. If we faithfully worked towards it. It's interesting thing about the picture is the picture doesn't tell us what to do. The picture doesn't give me instructions on what to do on July 22nd, 2017. In order to accomplish the vision that the picture paints of the backyard. It just holds itself out there as a vision. And invites me every single day to get up and to do the things that I know need to happen today. In order for that vision to be slowly realized in the present as we live towards its ultimate realization in the future. That's what we've been invited into to live the story of God day by day towards this beautiful picture of the new heaven and earth, the new creation, the kingdom of God that will one day be when Jesus returns. And our invitation today is to live the story today towards that end. Tolkien once wrote in the Hobbit that it is in the small deeds of the everyday deeds of small people that the darkness is held at bay. We're invited to live the story towards the vision of what is coming every day that we get up and practice the loving presence of God, loving him with everything we have And everything we are, we're living the story every single time we live into a relationship of love where we love somebody else more than we love ourselves. We are living the story every single time we love our world with the self-giving love of God that fights against injustice and oppression and the exploitation of our planet. We're being invited to live every day Towards the end that is coming. So it's interesting about the text. The disciples come to Jesus and ask him about the end of the world. And the answer Jesus gives is about what he wants them to do today. And that's what this series is about. It's about learning to begin to live with the end in mind and the difference that that makes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have not revealed to us all of the mystery of what it is you're doing in the world, either in the present uh, or in the future. There are many things that we don't know and can't know. Many things that we ought not to try to guess. You got to pray for those who are anxious. Living in anxiety these days. Just because of world events. But maybe also because of the fear of what they may be pointing towards in terms of the end. I pray you would free people from that fear. And I pray that instead you would root us in your love. The kind of love that calls us to live your story towards the beautiful picture of what you are doing. The place you are taking us to. This kingdom of God that will come to final fruition when Jesus returns. And I pray that you would give us the courage to live that kingdom today. Oh may your kingdom come on earth just as it is in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.